0: Those are all things that, you know, we're trying to help with that micro really just taking that process and just streamlining it. So it's kind of like a step one, step two, find your buyer, um, you know, gather LOIs, move into due diligence, you know, sign a stock purchase agreement or asset purchase agreement, uh, transferring of assets, escrow and then close. And then there's a thousand other ways to do that. But I think the more that we're able to streamline it. Um, we'll just make the process even easier for both
1: buyers and sellers. Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, managing partner of Interplay on this podcast. I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. This week I chat with Andrew Gazdecki, the founder and CEO of Microacquire. Microacquire is a marketplace that helps software companies match with interested buyers. Now, Andrew is a serial entrepreneur with a clear passion for startups, uh, which is something I obviously love. We bond on that. And after selling his last company, he's been on a mission to help founders sell their companies more easily. He's made a ton of progress and a significant number of founders are selling their companies through MicroAcquire already. We go well beyond MicroAcquire in this convo. We discuss Andrew's tips for being a solo founder. We also dove deep into how to sell your company. We covered the M&A process, market dynamics around M&A, and Andrew shared his key tips for selling your business. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Thunder. Thunder is a platform that is democratizing access to capital. The company believes fundraising should be about who you are and what you've built, not just about who you know. Founders can create a free account and add their company information and then match with relevant investors. Investors can create free profiles and provide their investment criteria, ensuring that they only receive relevant deal flow. By utilizing a double opt-in matching protocol, Thunder avoids a spam, only connecting investors and entrepreneurs as should be introduced. Visit thunder.vc to create your free account while the company is in beta. Andrew, thanks for being here, man yeah mark thanks for having me super excited cool uh let's start off you want to give us an overview of microquire
0: yeah so microquire is one of the largest startup acquisition marketplaces in the world today uh the way it works is we help mostly profitable software companies get acquired without some of the typical headaches you see today uh zero commissions uh, hundred fifty thousand registered buyers, six hundred plus acquisitions, and I believe we're we're around about half a billion in terms of GMB on the marketplace. And uh, yeah, just really trying to um you know democratize um acquisitions for you know the software industry.
1: When you're saying democratize. What's the what's the barrier you're breaking down?
0: Well. For a lot of people, acquisitions are kind of a mystery. There's kind of an industry quote where, you know, an investment banker's job, 90% of it is just educating a founder on how to sell their business. And really what we're trying to do is, you know, really bring education and content around how to actually get acquired. Cause you have books on marketing, you have books on fundraising, you have books on social media stuff, but there's nothing about, you know, arguably the most important part of the founder's journey which is the exit and this kind of came to me personally where you know i sold a business and as soon as i did i had i don't know six friends reach out to me and they're like how'd you find the buyer what was due diligence like what was uh the legal process um all this stuff and i was like i mean i didn't know going into it so for me it's like a life-changing moment with the other person on the other side of the table it's tuesday um so you know i felt there was a huge opportunity to really uh i guess you know level the playing field so when founders go to sell their business uh you know they're kind of you know equally matched with the buyer in terms of education and uh tools and resources needed to maximize or exit
1: what's the process someone goes through when they're selling uh you know, there's traditionally, there's a lot of steps in that on your site. Does it streamline it or what is it doing with regard to the process?
0: Yeah. So typically, I mean, this is arguable, but I would say the hardest part is usually just finding the buyer, finding a reputable, reputable buyer that will actually transact, knows acquisitions and we do an exceptional job in terms of bringing in high quality buyers in a micro So we solve that aspect. Um, other things that we've implemented is just making legal dog creation easier. So we built a letter of intent builder. We're building an asset purchase agreement builder. Um, so streamlining just like the legal dog creation. Um, also building... Uh, better tooling around just assessing the financial health of a business. So when you look at a SaaS startup, you know, you might get a and l and then you dig deep into that P&L and it says on first look, this is a really profitable company. It's growing, whatever. But when you really dig in, it could be the exact opposite story. So on Microquery, you can connect Stripe or ChartMogul or Permetrics or Google Analytics to get a really healthy snapshot of the business. And then we're also doing things like, you know, what is your sort of worth? You know, if you ask 10 people, you're going to get 10 different answers. So we're really trying to bring um, a data-driven approach to that using the data that we've seen from the hundreds of acquisitions that we've closed. And really, you know, the product that we're building inside of um, Microquire, it's such a multi-touch process. There's so many steps, finding the buyer, Going through the legal process, going through due diligence, uh, even just transferring assets—like how do you transfer, you know, a GitHub repo um, without? How do you put that into escrow? Um, Tools like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are all the things that you know we're thinking about and um, looking to streamline, and more importantly, standardize. You know, I think that's something that the market could really use because I see all the time where buyers will kind of get to terms and they're like. do we do my process your process so we want to standardize that to bring you know more trust and transparency to the industry so to
1: speak and is there a typical company size or buyer profile that you guys tend to plan yeah good question i'll start with the
0: buyers so we see a, a very wide array of buyers everything from the largest Private equity groups in the world. So, some multi billion dollar private equity groups. Um, we've seen acquisitions from venture capital firms. Mm-hmm. We've seen acquisitions from bootstrap companies acquiring other bootstrap companies. Um, a lot of aggregators, a lot of role plays, um, public companies as well. So, a lot of corp dev teams. Um, and then I the largest, the largest segment is probably uh, what I'd classify as individual buyers so these are people where you know a startup you know typically when you launch it would be think of an idea you know it still is that way but um you know some entrepreneurs maybe they've had a successful exit um a liquidity event at another company and they're just looking to buy a cash flowing business so that's another other large segment. So we see a pretty wide array. So you can get strategic offers and then financial offers and then um, individual buyers as well. Very
1: cool. Um, now, you mentioned this is specifically tailored for software companies, which I get. It makes a lot of sense. I'm sure the, the legal varies by industry. There's different considerations. Does this apply you know, down the road or in the future to non-software? To all the others yeah
0: i mean yeah i y- there's so many small businesses i mean the way i'll put this is you know the ultimate goal for my group are, And i don't know um, how long this will take but we want to be the marketplace where you can buy and sell any type of business so re- we're starting with software companies because it's so much easier to do online you know getting financial metrics in terms of revenue and expenses is so easy because everyone's already using and adopting tooling that just makes gathering that info um really easy. But let's say we wanted to move into main street businesses. Um you know a lot of those businesses don't have a PL. They don't have you know accurate financial records. They don't have you know um you know knowledge on how to sell their business. And so that's a market that we're definitely eyeing and i'm excited to enter into it at some point but um right now we're i'm a big fan of you know definitely have a beachhead first to start build out everything and can be completely dominant in one industry and then um kind of like the bowling ball strategy where you you know go in with one industry and then there's adjacent markets um that you can go after second
1: So what's the revenue model for this, right? You mentioned before there's no fees, but obviously it makes money.
0: Yeah, so I should know we are going to be charging commissions soon, but the way that we're thinking about commissions is there's other marketplaces and there's business brokers and investment bankers that will charge a commission for just listing on their marketplace. But what we want to do before charging commissions is we want to add so much value to the acquisition process that we you know streamline it, we make it faster, we make it more transparent, we allow buyers to make better decisions. Um, we help founders in terms of just confidence and speaking with buyers. Um, and we've just rolled out the first kind of you know let's call it the puzzle, the first puzzle piece of like ten. Um, so we'll we'll get there in in the near term. Um, And the first puzzle piece was, you know, the letter of intent builder, and we just uh, integrated an escrow service. Um, But right now, our only business model is we charge buyers a annual subscription to access the platform. And what I mean by that is, so you can go on MicroQuare and you can look at all the listings and they're basically blind profiles. And so what that means is basically it's a private marketplace. You don't know what the startup is, but it has high level metrics up. You know, trailing 12 months revenue, profit, growth rate, annual recurring revenue, tech stack, competitors, growth opportunities, why is the founder selling, all that stuff. But if you want to know what is the business, how to contact the seller, you would just subscribe to what we call Microquire Premium, which is just 3 nine a year. And then when that happens, we then go and bet the buyer and ensure that they're a real person and they're, you know, legitimate and that's that's it for now but um in the future we'll definitely move to a commission model but yeah right now it's um kind of the the, the, the simplistic business model of, of microquire
1: i love that who are the naysayers for this and what are their objections what do you hear
0: <sighs> um i mean when i first started the business everyone <laughs> uh Quite literally everyone. Um, everyone Amazing. from um <laughs> yeah. Y- you know, even when I sold my first company, I got light advice from an investment bank, um, uh banker. Uh it was just a friend. I just would, you know, call him for phone a friend questions and I floated this idea behind him and he was like, There's just no way. So investment bankers, business brokers, um, yeah i mean everybody but today i would say um that's a good question i mean i would say probably you know the incumbents in the industry are probably the biggest naysayers um those are the bankers and the brokers or yeah so probably the people that have been you know the typical routes for people to sell their startups um but uh it's definitely naysayers have decreased but i think you know if you're building a business and you don't have naysayers i think that's kind of a red flag you always want to have you know i I always want to hear feedback from both customers investors users friends like what sucks about the business and like what they think won't work because that's stuff that i can use to you know um, improve the business if everything's perfect then it's like okay well that's not very helpful. I'd rather know what. So I, I kind of like the naysayers. And another thing I'll say about naysayers is it's uh, per, my personal
1: favorite uh, motivational fuel for building a startup. That's a It's a dangerous concept, not listening to the naysayers. When I was starting out as an entrepreneur in my 20s, I was a bad entrepreneur. I just I'd heard somewhere along the line, you can't take no for an answer. And I would just kind of keep running into brick walls over and over and over and over. You figured it out. So what's the, what's the fine line there between how do you know when a naysayer is wrong and when you shouldn't listen? And how do you know when a naysayer is right and you should go back to the drawing board?
0: That's a really good question. I would say you got to look for a pattern recognition. I mean, I mean, at the beginning, I think with any startup, you got be, to believe when others don't believe. Like You just got to have unwilling belief in yourself. And for micro you know, this business for me really isn't work. Um, It's like, I describe it as like my video game. I, you know, I, my job is to help people sell their business for, you know, life-changing amounts of money. Um, And we don't benefit from that. We just add so much value to the startup community. And I get to look at interesting businesses all day long. So you know, that, that part's really rewarding, but in terms of, you know, um, you know, when to listen to naysayers and when to maybe disregard the feedback is, you know, I would say, you know, if you, if you hear the same thing over and over and over, I mean, there's some truth in there somewhere, but, you know, you know, there's, that's probably where I'd land is, you know, you want to look for pattern recognition. If everyone's saying like, Hey, this isn't going to work, you know, after you've started, you know, into the market, um, you know, take that as maybe truth and then prove that wrong. Um, so that's probably how I would think about it. Um, but that's a really good question in terms of, you know, the balance of you don't want to listen to every naysayer because if you did, you just never get anything done. Um, cause everyone would just say, you know, this isn't gonna work for this reason, or this isn't gonna work because this other person tried starting this company. And that may be true, but you know, things evolve over time, such as um, you know, the market might be ready for whatever solution you're building, um, you know, a number of other factors. So I would just say, you know, pattern recognition in terms of, you know, how often are you hearing it? And then how does that compare to the people that support you? Does the naysayers are there more naysayers and supporters, um, and then balance those two?
1: I think for me, and I think we're, we're saying what you're saying in a um, little spit on it. What changed for me when I went from kind of being a bad entrepreneur to a fairly decent one was realizing that when I had the naysayers, they were saying there was a wall in front of me, but they weren't saying that the deal was impossible or the venture was impossible. They were framing the experiment I needed to do. They were saying, even though they didn't know it, they were saying, hey, this will never work for that reason. And then I would start setting up, once I got better at this, I started setting up experiments to test those things. The idea of determining whether or not they're right. Because I couldn't tell the difference between the naysayers who, who are correct and who are wrong. So for me, it became, they, they become kind of a, a light bulb, a flashlight to help illuminate uh, the opportunities for experimentation to test things to figure out if the model is right so I, I do think they're they're a useful part of the process the problem is when i was when i was first starting as an entrepreneur it was really disorienting i just thought i was supposed to not listen to anybody but the reality is there was some wisdom even if they weren't right they were at least telling me what to test does that resonate with you or yeah that yeah i couldn't have said it better myself because usually when you get a naysayer it's
0: um i mean the best naysayers are very specific like it started with how are you ever going to get a startup to list on a marketplace like they have these options to sell okay so that's the problem i need to solve and i went and solved that problem and then the second problem is okay so how are you going to you know get buyers on this platform okay solve that problem So, I think the way that you're framing it is uh, I couldn't have worded it better. Um, And naysayers can sometimes point you in a better direction than um, supporters because, you know, supporters are like, hey, this is awesome. Right. But a naysayer is saying, hey, I think you got to really think about this problem in this business, or I've seen a similar business and they have this problem. So, you know, varying the degrees of, you know, from, A naysayer of this all never work. That's that I'd probably, you know, use that as fuel. But when it gets specific in terms of like, you know, for these reasons, you're right. Those are just, you know, barriers that you need to overcome.
1: Why did you start this? I, I know you had been through the venture and people called you, but a lot of people have sold companies and a lot of people have received those calls and not done anything about it. Why you? I mean, i just felt the the startup
0: ecosystem needed a marketplace for to easily find buyers to easily go through an acquisition process um with much more efficiency and innovation than we see today and when i looked at the market so here's here's how, there's there's a, a story of when i first started my MicroQuire. so i always you know I started with the customer. So I am a big believer that, you know, the founders that go the distance are the ones that truly love what they do. Um, and I think that needs to start with, you know, the customer because you're gonna be talking to them a lot. So micro customers are entrepreneurs and startups. And I love, I'm like a startup junkie. Like, you know, I I love startups. I, I've been building startups since I was a kid. When I say startups, I'll count like an eBay store. Um, but Accounts Um, as a
1: kid, that's, that's proper.
0: Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, I looked around the market and I just didn't see anything that was specific to, you know, software companies, specifically SaaS. you know, there was no marketplace for SaaS. Um, the typical routes to sell your business were, uh, really cost prohibitive to a lot of smaller software companies. So let's say you're doing, you know, 5 million in revenue. That's, generally too small for an investment bank to take you on in most cases and that's generally too small for a strategic to get really required interested um and just even finding those buyers is extremely difficult and it took me three years to find you know the buyer for my um first business so i just saw a large market zero innovation um low nps and when i say low nps with the current options. You know if you work with a business broker you're gonna be paying you know up to 15 percent commission which is like a small angel round um when you get into numbers with investment banking um you know, you move towards you know lehman scale of like two three percent but um on the lower end of the market i just saw you know just this huge opportunity to, to innovate to educate streamline and just kind of consolidate the entire industry into one place um so it operates more efficiently and that got me super excited this is an opportunity to not only i think do a lot of good for entrepreneurs um because this this is going to sound kind of cheesy but you know um when you, when you start your first business, you know, I, I kind of believe it's like for purpose. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, most entrepreneurs just want to be, you know, financially secure or whatever it may be. That's just my personal belief. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, um, swing really big on their first shot and really they'd just be happy with, you know, an outcome that makes them financially secure. And so, you know, that was my goal with my first business. And I, I was fortunate enough to to get there. Um, And so this business was more of a passion business where I would run this business for free, and I did. I ran this business. um, It was just me for about a year and a half doing everything from customer support to vetting the listings, to writing the newsletters, managing the product, getting on podcasts like this, just because I enjoyed it. And then Mm -hmm. once I... After you're going through a year of that, when you kind of like, when you go through a year of that and you, you know, aren't stressed out, you aren't, you know, uh, sweating it, like that's when you start to realize like, this is, this is the business I want to work on for the next decade. Um, so I, I I hope that answers your question.
1: That's awesome. Why now? Is there any particular thing about the timing other than it was the right timing for you? Anything with the I would pandemic say, or recessions that kind of played into this? Well, we definitely saw some some good market tailwinds
0: in terms of you know there's never been more M and A activity in the last two years than ever. So, um, you know, I always say when you when you think about a startup, you want to make a non obvious bet that's obvious to you. That's going to become mm. obvious over time. So I felt I love that, you know, growth through acquisition was going to be um, a trend or entrepreneurship through acquisition was going to be a trend. And I made a bet on that early and it it panned out. Um, the second point I would make is in terms of just the amount of startups being created. I mean, if we just do the numbers, um, you know, less than half percent of startups raise venture capital. Out of those, I believe it's like, let's just call it like, you know, around less than 1% become a unicorn startup worth a billion dollars or more. Um, so there's, you know, millions of startups being created, not just in the United States, but globally. So MicroQuire is, you know, facilitating acquisitions now. And I I believe, you know, 50 plus different countries. Um, so that was kind of like the bet I made where a startup have been democrat people are going to be foregoing um uh venture capital and really just looking to build you know sustainable profitable businesses and um I, i was right to some extent and so i think we're seeing this new um style of entrepreneurship being created on both sides where people are you know happy with hitting you know singles and doubles And I think that's great. And I think it's amazing when people, you know, swing for the grand slam as well. I think entrepreneurships on, on every level is fantastic, but, um, I think, you know, why now is just the trend of, you know, larger companies growing through acquisition and then other entrepreneurs entering entrepreneurship by actually acquiring a company instead of just starting one and thinking of an idea and hoping it works kind of chewing glass for two years, trying to find product market fit. You can accelerate all that by just buying product market fit, essentially. So those were the two bets that I made. Um, and then like with any business, you need a little bit of luck. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I kind of just timed it correctly.
1: I feel like when everyone's going through life and working through their careers, when they're looking out the windshield at the future or real time as it's happening, feels like you're driving down a windy road but in hindsight when you're looking out that rearview mirror that road can look pretty straight kind of linear a path what what is your background how did you get how did you end up being the guy starting this to build a platform to help entrepreneurs around the world
0: um i mean i i would just probably go to my childhood um you know I've been building businesses literally since I was, we should probably classify businesses as again, eBay store (laughs) counts as one if it does. Right. Ventures
1: of some sort.
0: Yeah. um, You know, I've, I've always just been, you know, a big fan of creating businesses. I was just that weird kid that this was when everyone was, you know, collecting baseball cards, I was selling them. um, you know, I uh, started a company in college. I went into college. I went to UC Chico State, uh, also Target of the West. And uh, that's a joke if <laughs> I was not catching that. Um, and my goal was okay, I got four years to start a company. Like that was my only goal. I knew that, you know, my personal ambitions of where I wanted to go in life getting a job just wasn't the route for me, not just financially or anything like that, but just, I knew I wanted like some kids grow up wanting to be, you know, the quarterback of a football team or whatever, or professional baseball player I knew pretty young. And, you know, if we, if my mom did a cameo on this, she could confirm it. But I like openly said, I wanted to be the CEO of a company. I wanted to be a business owner. Um, it just, I love that was my sport. And so um I entered college and I had four years to figure something out. I ended up going five. Um and I'll I'll give you a little tidbit on that. But uh short story there is entered our our entrepreneurship business plan competition every single year. I got fourth, third, second, and then finally first with a business called um business business apps, but bizness apps. Um, which was a drag and drop um, no code app. And um, I started that business um, uh, because I had a job board before that, that connected mobile developers with businesses. And I kept seeing the same job posting over and over and over. And I was like, there's these, you know, do yourself website builders. Like what if there's this do yourself mobile app builder? And I was in a college town where, you know, every bar and restaurant and um you know pretty much every business was trying to connect with their customers on their mobile mobile devices and um i built a simple template and made it really easy for me to customize it it was super it was like an mvp that would like make you just cringe if you if you saw it uh but it started with humble beginnings where i just you know, I was thinking, okay, maybe I could make like an agency where I have 50 clients and I charge them $50 a month. I don't have to get a job. That was literally my only goal. Um, I just wanted to be, you know, in control of my own destiny. So to speak, um, that business, um, you know, took off a little bit faster than I could have ever imagined. Um, and the, the ironic part of the fifth year story is I, uh, minored in entrepreneurship and i did that so i can get financial aid and so i can pay for you know rent and stuff like that didn't go to any classes but focus on the business um so it kind of lowered my gpa but um i came out of college with a a a, a, a pretty fast growing startup which was nice so i mean I, I would say just you know i've been an entrepreneur my whole life
1: and just helping entrepreneurs is just extremely rewarding for me now you, you sold a company before was it was it it was business apps, right? That you yeah. was, your, was your company went to A to Z on. Is there a story with that that you think was kind of like moving for you or an experience you'd want to share with folks?
0: Yeah, I actually I actually wrote a book about the whole experience because I knew it was so weird because um, I was 21. Um, and just to give you some and I got to say, this was like one of those businesses, like right place, right time, ginormous market obvious problem, obvious solution. And I just got lucky. Um, obviously, you know, luck is, you know, hard work time match, which with, uh, preparation, whatever the quote is. And I worked, I worked my ass off for sure. But, um, yeah, we, we grew from zero to 5 million in the first three years. Um, or first four years or something like that. We only raised a hundred thousand dollars for the business. Um at one point we were creating more mobile apps than any other company in the world. So to give you some idea of the scale, is we when we would do the math, every quarter Apple would release reports like how many apps that they uploaded, and we would just kind of divide by how many apps we uploaded. And at one point we were supplying five percent of all the apps into the iTunes um app store. Wow. And the and the cool part about um, how we did that was it wasn't even my idea. It was, um, a customer's idea. Um, cause selling one app to a small business at a time is an extremely grueling sales process. And there was, and I, I'll, I, I'll never forget this moment. So this was, you know, I've always been a solo founder and, um, uh, you know, I remember being alone in my office when it was me just trying to cold call, uh, I think I was cold calling like restaurants and I'd call them like, hey, what's your you know mobile app strategy? And they're like, app? Like, do you mean appetizer? Um, <laughs> 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 no, this is a true story. And uh, there's this individual that built uh, like four apps for these really nice hotels in Switzerland, Ramada hotels. And I gave him a call just to, I'm 21, I'm I'm young, and so I'm thinking this guy's, very successful. Maybe he has some advice for me. And so I just kind of talked to him, and he quickly tells me, like Oh, no, I don't own the hotels. I have a marketing agency. And so my first question, my second question is, Okay, uh, how can I help you sell more apps? Like, this is incredible. And he gave me this advice that changed the trajectory of the business um, forever. Where he just said, If you could white label the product, where I can put my company's branding on it and then present this to my clients as a semi custom app, I could sell hundreds of these. So from that day, we went from selling one app at a time to hundreds of apps at a time. So we'd have these partnerships with web design agencies all over the world. And then we ended up partnering with, um, a couple of public companies. Um, you know, all the do yourself, um, you know, SMB type, um, companies, Uh, that allowed us to keep our, uh, ability to, I guess, put another way, um, we didn't need to raise additional capital because we had this, uh, you know, global sales force that was essentially, you know, paying us to sell our product. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we were able to scale the business, um, really quickly. And then just to kind of cap that off, um, exited the business when I was, um, 29 to a private equity firm.
1: That's awesome. But you you had mentioned before you had started, been starting companies from a lot younger of an age. This wasn't your first go. Tell us about the skateboarding competition. (laughs) Oh gosh. Uh,
0: So it wasn't, so um, it wasn't a a competition. It was, um, it was a petition. So if you Google Andrew Gazdecki skateboarding on YouTube, uh there's a few videos where uh you can get the the fuller story. But long story short, um I grew up in San Clemente and it's a beach town, you know, surfing and skateboarding is kind of like the sports that you that everyone's into. Um and my principal in junior high wouldn't let me ride my skateboard to school. And he would give me detention or whatever. And so I remember standing outside of uh like the local grocery store. And I gathered like 700 signatures or something like that. And then uh, one of them was like a news reporter for the local San Clemente newspaper or something like that. And then the next thing I know, the LA Times is calling and like all these news shows. And then uh, I was on the Dr. Laura show. It was like my 15 minutes of fame. I always joke saying like, you know, it was my 15 minutes of my fame. My life's been downhill since then. but. (laughs) Uh, yeah I I made a petition to ride my skateboard to school because I was so angry at my principal for not letting me Um, so that maybe gives you a little bit more insight into my personality of always kind of like you know looking at things and being like why is it like this like maybe it should be a little bit different Um, you know so uh, that that was a fun time
1: hell hath no fury like a frustrated founder (laughs) look out um, yeah, so now you mentioned you, you tend to be a solo founder. That's your move. What what advice do you have for folks about how to do that well? Because a lot of people don't want to be a solo founder. You know, uh, these roller coasters have highs and lows, and having someone else to be there to support you is a very helpful thing. What has worked for you?
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: I I got to give credit to my wife for sure.
0: She is is kind of the secret co-founder and like everything i do um like just before this podcast i was talking to her about it um i was saying terrible things about you
1: mark (laughs) no just kidding um and she was telling you uh, to do it anyway yeah
0: so so i met i met this wonderful italian lady in um uh college and you know i I remember coming home uh, to our apartment and telling her about business apps and, you know, she's very business savvy. She owns her own recruiting firm. She's also an entrepreneur. Um, So I kind of have a little bit of, uh, you know, an, an advantage there in terms of it is hard and you do need to, you know, just bend and sometimes just like brainstorm and just, You know it's friday night and you just want to talk about the business and like being able to just kind of openly share your thoughts so it's it's tough being a solo founder i don't recommend it without any support um but for me i just generally move quicker um and i would consider myself a a pretty decently rounded generalist where i can uh manage sales teams i can do sales calls i you know can market a business i know how to manage product teams um so it's it's tough it's it definitely has its its um you know drawbacks in terms of you're doing all the work instead of splitting the work my wife's not like helping me build microquare or anything that, giving me that support piece um but i mean if you are a solo founder i think other things that worked really well for me was like with business apps um I had two angel investors one of his names um was Christian Friedland and he was like a like almost like a dad to me he he didn't make a lot of angel investments he maybe made like 3 4 and he built a company called build.com um it's basically think of like Home Depot online they do a couple billion in gmv per year and he, the guy is just a brilliant entrepreneur and we got along really well and we talk on a near daily basis. So, you know, if you don't have a co-founder, I highly recommend getting, you know, a mentor that's going to be there along for the ride. Um, another thing that's worked for me is um, a CEO. So I work with a CEO coach. His name is Tim Porthouse. Um, I met him through um, a peer CEO group um, called 10X CEO. Um, so definitely, you know, huge advocate of, you know, when you build a startup, it's, it's a decade long journey. And the more people you can put in your corner, I think the higher your chances of success are going to be. So, um, my decision to be, you know, a solo founder is mostly around just, I just like to go, you know, like, uh, you know, I have an idea. I just start working on it immediately. And I'd say that's probably one of my biggest strengths and biggest, biggest weaknesses is, um, I'm a terrible planner. Um, I just, if I have an idea, it just comes out and I just go. Um,
1: so. Okay, interesting. So that's that's kind of your background, how you got here. But I, I also want to spend a little bit of time on the M&A process while we've got someone living this. Because I think there are a lot of people who are trying to figure out how to navigate this. I've sold a handful of companies. Um, wide variety of outcomes and seeing in those different outcomes different processes. Uh, I just wrote a post on Benzinga that um, was about some of the things I learned last year and I feel like I'm constantly learning on the M a stuff and the irony for me is I used to be an MA a consultant, but it's very different doing the consulting work and being you know on the cap table trying to go through a process It's just a different machine different set of uh, things you have to manage. Now that you're knee-deep in this, I mean, you're probably seeing more M&A processes than arguably just about anybody else. Could you give us some basic architecture and kind of how, an, you know, if you were to do like a 101 on how an M&A deal works, what are the basic stages that people have to go through uh, to prep, market, and get their company out the door?
0: Yeah, definitely. So it depends on the size of the business to start Um, but obviously the larger the business the more complex the process is going to be but um, the general process is uh, number one uh, figure what is your ideal outcome Um, if you have a a good business you might have multiple options and figuring what that is can really help kind of narrow down you know your buyers or at least you really upfront when you're speaking with buyers, um, and then number two is just you know being prepared and taking you know the acquisition process seriously. And what I mean by that is have you know a proper you know deal book put together, you know put everything in a data room, um, put together you know a sim. And some of these sims that you put together, like the ones that we put together at Microcore, can be fifty plus pages long. Um, and then once you have all that prepared. You're going to want to do some buyer reach out where maybe there's some strategic buyers that you think will be an ideal fit for your business. Um, Those are usually harder to land just because you're literally interrupting their, you know, whatever initiatives they have. Um, So also include financial buyers, which is typically, you know, a private equity firm. Um, But I think, you know, the biggest misconception that entrepreneurs have about getting acquired is. You know, companies are bought, not sold. I think I would argue that term is not true unless you're Slack or something like that. You're going like crazy. If Salesforce doesn't buy you, someone else is going to like, if you have a lot of leverage. But for a lot of other startups, you know, you really do need to sell your startup. Um, you need to map out who potential buyers are. You need to prepare in advance. You need to have an, a basic understanding of. What is due diligence? What are, they, what are the questions you're going to ask and can you prepare in advance? So when the, those questions are asked, you can answer them promptly. Um, and then also having, you know, people in your corner that can help. That can make all the difference, like proper legal representation. Um, if you're completely unsure of what to do, you know, you can hire an m a advisor or an investment bank um, to help you run the process. Um, but yeah, I mean, if we went from like step one to like step five, it's, uh, you know, get prepared. You know, once you find the buyer, you're gonna move into typically uh, light due diligence. And your goal there is really to line up buyers and you wanna have, uh, typically what I would recommend is like a, a time process. So for example, you have, you say, I'm gonna be taking calls up until this date. I'm going to um, expect either LOI's or IOI's until this date. Uh, and then an LOI for those who aren't familiar is just basically, you know, a, a non-legally, buy, it's like a term sheet, um, but it's the buyer company. And then from there, um, you know, you figure out which LOI makes sense and you move forward with that and then you move into due diligence, which is basically like getting audited by the IRS times 100. <laughs> um, it, it's not fun and it takes, Sometimes months. Um, but, you know, when I was going through due diligence for my first company, um, I got the best advice that was, you know, hey, this sucks. But, you know, just think of if you just calculate, you know, the hours in terms of what you're going to make, just keep going. Um, so that's, that's kind of like the high level overview. There's so much nuance in terms of You know, are you going to be staying on with the business? Is this going to be too strategic where it's an all stock deal? Um, Are you staying in the business at all? Are you looking for an all cash buyer? Um, You know, there's so many different factors, um, you know, at play. But uh, those are all things that, you know, we're trying to help with at MicroQuire is really just taking that process and just streamlining it so it's kind of like a step one, step two, find your buyer, um, you know, gather LOIs, move into due diligence, you know, sign a stock purchase agreement or asset purchase agreement, uh transferring of assets, escrow and then close. And then there's a thousand other ways to do that, but I think the more that we're able to streamline it, um, we'll just make the process e- easier for both buyers and sellers.
1: How long is the process typically
0: on microquire or just in, in general?
1: Well, maybe you can give us a compare contrast.
0: I've, I've seen, well, it'll be interesting to see how things go over the next, you know, it's called it like year or however long, um, you know, the markets are seeing some volatility, but I've seen acquisitions happen in two weeks. Like Mm. from like LOI to closing to to cash in the bank. I think that's a little fast and loose. Um, But I'd say typically, you know, expect like 90 days. That's like a good process. Um, You know, if you have time, I mean, the more patient you can be, depending on what your ideal outcome is, um, the better. But I would say probably about on my group wire, you know, anywhere from like 30 to 90 days is pretty normal. Um, but for me, um, you know, it took years, so it it just depends, especially on the scale of the business because as your business gets bigger, so does your your buyer pool get smaller. So if you're out there trying to sell a 100 million dollar company or a billion dollar company or, you know, a 10 billion dollar company, your buyer pool is very, very, very small. And so it might take years to build
1: relationships with those individuals.
0: Unless you price an, it super, super
1: cheap. The, um, the, some of the processes we've been through were typically about six months, which was a lot longer than I had expected. But there was so much diligence being done, and there were so many layers of conversation. I think one of the things that shocked me most about the M&A cycle was I kind of didn't understand until I'd been through it a few times that the tail end of the m process, when you've got a counterparty and you've got a medium-sized or bigger company, every contract, which is like the connective tissue in the company, it's like the tendons and the cartilage of a body, ends up at some level getting renegotiated or twisted or tweaked to make sure everyone's going to be happy working, at, you know, lined up to be part of this bigger entity. And it is an arduous, thorough, painful process. Just the volu- the sheer volume of it. Most of it's not that high friction. It's just the volume of it is crazy. So that was the surprise for me in going through it. Is it took us six months and a couple of them. But yeah, I think I think it probably had to co- correlate it more with the scale of the operation being sold, the number of people on the team, the number of customer contracts, things like that. Everything had to be retooled.
0: Yeah, I mean, on a micro where we generally, I haven't seen like a hundred plus person company it acquired yet. But, yeah, that sounds about accurate because, you know, you're essentially combining two companies and you have to have everything, you know, sound and stuff. So,
1: um, yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. You know, are are people in the similar comp tiers, but you have to align those between the companies It's just a lot. Um, I loved what you said before about companies, uh, the adage bought, not sold, uh, not really applying. I think the subtext of that phrase historically was, you make a lot more money when someone's chasing you to buy your company than you do when you're trying to shill it. But I wonder if that phrase came or was produ- you know, kind of manifested before there was a really institutional market of people and firms buying companies. I mean, there's so much private equity money out there. There's so many firms where they have to buy something or they're not doing their job or they're not going to put up generate yield for their investors. So there's a real motivation for people to buy smart, make smart investments and buy companies, even if they've never heard of you before, you haven't developed that relationship. That may not have been the way it was 20 or 30 years ago, 40 years ago, before the private equity industry was so developed. Just an interesting side note. I hadn't clicked until you said that, but I I think that might be a phrase from before the sophisticated private equity market was developed.
0: Yeah, I I can say that with 100% certain, even, you know, just thinking about like 10 years ago, or even, even five years, even when I, even three years ago, from where I sold my business, um, you know, when I was approached by the private equity firm that bought my business, um, you know, I didn't know too much about private equity, I didn't know how many of these firms existed. But I can tell you there are legitimately hundreds of them, if not thousands, oh, thousands with huge balance sheets. And you're you're correct. They are all looking to buy um, pretty much kind of the same thing, at least from my vantage point, which is just, you know, high growth SaaS companies. Um, so it's it's definitely a really, really good time to be a founder because your options for exiting your startup are just increasing exponentially and that wasn't there
1: five or ten years ago yeah really interesting macro trend on this i think in tech private equity didn't really touch it in the last 20 years ago because the business models weren't well understood right vcs tend to invest in growth and pe shops tend to buy cash flows they want steady cash flow and they can work some financial engineering and value out to the company and they can make a buck on it and i think tech was just perceived as too risky growth oriented. People didn't know there wasn't standard metrics and KPIs and understanding of business models. And that's shifted. There were some firms that pioneered in, I want to say, first decade of the century, firms like Silver Lake and and others that came out and kind of planted a flag saying, hey, we can do this steady cash flow game in tech because there are steady cash flows. We understand these business models. They are predictable. Uh, And since then, I think it's proliferated. So that the world of uh, opportunity for founders now is different. I think we're not going to see them buying the breakout companies and venture portfolios. Private equity buyers are known for not paying the highest price um, if they get no bake off with a strategic another company or the opportunity to go public. But the middle of venture portfolios bottom, there's going to be a lot of opportunities. And I think we're going to see more founders finally merging. With their private equity counterparts whereas these two industries have kind of been running in parallel for a long time but not doing a lot of business together so it's kind of exciting i think it's gonna you know put more money into entrepreneur pockets help more people fund new entrepreneurs accelerate the whole machine and in the process of doing that help the private equity folks do better with their performance so i think it's actually a pretty interesting crossover moment i think it's going to have big impact on the broader economy
0: yeah i completely agree i mean like I said before, just the amount of private equity firms being founded and, you know, deploying capital, especially, you know, it'll be interesting to reflect on, you know, what this next year looks like, because um, there are going to be some companies, like you said, where, you know, they're not going to be able to reach that strategic multiple um, and private equity is going to be probably the buyer of those businesses. And that's not a bad thing. You know, you are correct in terms that financial buyers almost always pay lower than a strategic buyer but they're in the business of buying companies so when you go to market to financial buyers i've seen deals that are all cash um you know walk away from the business in 30 days quick due diligence like there's also been kind of a a trend in terms of you know just like with venture capital maybe compared to 20 years ago when we i i wasn't, I was making eBay stores in the 2000s, but, um, (laughs) I I think, you know, venture capital has really, you know, become, you know, a a partnership business with founders and, you know, you get these great investors that really help your business. And I think I could see that becoming a trend with private equity where maybe they take, you know, um, you know, more small bites first in terms of, you know, uh, partial buyouts and then, uh, full buyouts later on, making it you know, kind of a more founder-friendly um, you know, process. That's, that's already starting to happen, um, but I can see that becoming kind of like the industry norm over time.
1: Yeah, like two comments on that. One, one, I definitely want to be clear. I don't think private equity exits are bad. They just tend to be not as high as the strategic. but They're still great for the founders and people do very well. Um, but two, yeah, I think you make a point that I hadn't thought about. There's probably through these Two oceans, kind of colliding, going to be some real innovation in a couple in the private equity model. Real opportunity for that. Um, what if, just shifting back to kind of some knowledge share for folks listening? What are the top three things you would suggest someone remember or do? Top three tips for selling a company. You've seen a lot of this stuff now. What's the yeah. wisdom you could share with folks?
0: I mean, it's it's all pretty pretty basic but also complex at the same time and i think it all comes down to i mean the top top three is um number one you know again i'm assuming your business is let's say under you know 20 million that's kind of what i see the most but i don't want to speak to above that because i don't see it that often um but be honest be you know very transparent with your business i think you know, bring your business in front of buyers with warts and everything. Um, you know, if there's a certain, if you haven't raised your pricing, if you haven't, you know, tapped into a certain, you know, uh, ways to grow your business, um, be honest about why are you selling? Um, you know, understanding that, you know, this isn't just like buying a car where you just hand the keys and you're gone. So the more that the buyer trusts you and, you know, obviously that's going to be come out it's really going to come out and due diligence but um i'd start there just you know being honest um being upfront with you know really what you're looking to accomplish and then being prepared in terms of you know just like with um you know anything is the more prepared you are the more serious you appear to um specifically financial buyers and also strategic buyers as well um because people you know corp debt people and people in private equity they look at deals all day long and so you know the more serious that you can appear the you're going to make them feel like they're not going to waste their time if they really start digging in um so i would say um be prepared have a data room have a clean you know uh three-year p l if you if you have one available um and then also just you know be prepared in terms of you know, understanding, you know, what to expect in due diligence, what to expect through the legal process. Um, you know, how do you, how are you going to find these buyers? Um,
1: microquire is a decent way. Um, yeah. sounds like you could help all, front, all of those fronts, the trading as well. We can.
0: And another part, um, about microquire too, is, um, if you need an M&A advisor or if you need an investment banker, or if you need a, you know, someone to help you with, like, what is your company worth? Um. We have a directory um, within Microcare where you can hire these people to help all the way from uh, legal counsel to tax planning to and everyone involved in M&A transactions. So I would say build your bench, be prepared and, and just be honest and just understand what your startup is worth. And then in terms of, you know, when you're actually speaking with buyers, don't be afraid to walk away. Like the person who wins in negotiation is the person who cares the least. So you know, a buyer is always going to be looking for a way to, you know, devalue your business just because, you know, everyone wants a, a deal, so to speak. So if you have a certain number in mind and you're not going to deviate from that and it's a realistic valuation, stick to that um, unless it's like 10% low, lower and it's you know going to be a great outcome and an extra 10% isn't going to materially change your life, um, but Uh, that, 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 that probably my, my top three. Um, I know it's pretty basic, but you know, I think, I think the basics are usually the most
1: important. Totally agree on that. That's good advice. What do you think your industry needs? Right. You're out there putting together a lot of the pieces of this puzzle. What are you not doing that you hope other people will kind of pick up the slack on?
0: Um, I would say just more innovation. I think really with, you know, acquisitions just you know, there's there's so much that we can do in terms of using data to help startup founders, you know, really understand what their business is worth. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it it isn't a hundred times annual recurring revenue. Um, you know, that's just not what the market is is currently paying um to acquire your business. Um standardization across, you know, legal docs. Like what I think you know, one of the most interesting uh, documents that has, you know, been created for the startup ecosystem is the the safe by Y Combinator mm. that had, that's that's been used by so many different founders to raise capital, you know, standardizing, you know, an LOI or standardizing, you know, a stock purchase agreement or an asset purchase agreement um, and really just kind of streamlining that whole process. I think that's kind of what's needed to really help um a lot of different startups get acquired and then um you know my hope with microacquire is we obviously do work with a lot of sophisticated buyers but there are a lot of people that are you know really starting to get interested in entrepreneurship through acquisition and i think we have the opportunity to you know educate and empower people on both sides which could potentially unlock you know hundreds of millions or potentially billions of dollars Um, If we're able to create, you know, a flow that builds trust and confidence and helps, you know, both buyers and sellers every step of the way of the acquisition process. So um, long story short, I would say just, you know, um, more automation, um, you know, really streamlining things, standardizing things and just making things a little less confusing um, would do the industry a lot of good.
1: We're big believers that entrepreneurs are the driver of a lot of social change. So what you're doing is important it's helping people kind of streamline get more done faster so anyway thank you for being on andrew We're grateful for your time
0: yeah thanks for, thanks for having me on mark
1: andrew's got a big mission at micro Choir. uh obviously i'm super pumped about it i think this is exactly the kind of thing we need to help moving society forward some brief housekeeping uh, i'm heading off for vacation next week little family trip with the kids Uh, So look for the next pod coming out in two weeks. Uh, And here's my pandering. If you like what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with your friend. And you can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, you can subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.